Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More importantly, today I have the pleasure of having a conversation with Dr. Ramdas Lam, who is um, a professor and undergraduate chair at the University of Hawaii, Manoa, in the Department of Religious Studies, uh, religion, I should say. Ramdas, welcome to the podcast. Hi, good morning. Namaste. Good morning. Yeah, namaste. <laughs> the Rishis knew we'd be all be on Zoom in different time zones, you see. So namaste, because I think it's morning for yeah, you. And for, for me, af- it's morning. Afternoon yeah. for me. <laughs> and who knows <laughs> when the listeners are, are, are tuning in. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about what got you into uh, interest, studying, what, you know, tell us a bit about your journey with, uh, with South Asia. Well, I was raised by a, um, a mother who had a very Southern Italian Catholic upbringing. And I, and I was raised very much within that context. My father wasn't around for the first, essentially five years of my life. So it was my mother and my grandfather so my mother tongue Italian and um, <clears throat> was very raised within that. I ended up going to Catholic school um, for six years and wanted to become a priest. It was uh, just, it seemed like a natural development in those days. The Catholic church, especially with Italian and Irish families, pretty much they expected one kid from every family to either be a priest or a nun. <laughs> And that's how they would collect them. And that's why in those days there were so many uh, Italian and Irish priests and nuns. Right? So I kind of <clears throat> wanted to go in that direction. But when I was eight years old, it, things changed. I read a book, uh, a little kid's book on Gandhi, and, and it, it really just changed the way, the way I thought about life. And I decided at that time I wanted to go to India. And um, at eight years old, huh? Eight years old, yeah. Wow, that's some scar ripened early. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) and what was great is my mom said, "Yeah, you should," you know. So, and 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 then uh, I left home at fifteen, rejected the church because of what I saw. This is during the time of civil rights movement, and. and I saw the church as being part of the problem, not part of the solution. I didn't see Christianity necessarily in that, and I didn't see Jesus in that realm, but I saw the church very much within that realm. Um, so I, I figured, well, since the church claims it owns God, I guess I have to give up God too. So I did. And, you know, great, easy. I'm going to hell anyway, so no problem. Um, and, and then... <laughs> And, and then over the next couple of years, I realized that that didn't work for me and that actually an under, a, a belief in a higher consciousness, a belief in a, in a higher presence informed much of what I believed. And so I started reading Gandhi again. And, um, and that really is what firmed up my, my desire to go to India. And then I had the opportunity to go briefly um and then i came back i was there just for three weeks it was a a journey that someone else uh, paid for and then i came back and i and after about a year i wanted to go back again and i got as far as europe hitchhiked to india and um ended up in the himalayas and met my teacher and and it's that's what happened so a number of 
fascinating threads that I think many can relate to in this day and age in terms of uh, the religious, the religious, the spiritual, the both, the, the either or, the both end. Um, yeah. uh, I, I work with a number of people um, in sort of even the emic context at the you know, in spiritual council who come from uh, Christian and particularly Catholic backgrounds. Um, and so there does seem to be, in my personal experience, uh, very much this tension between the spirituality, quote unquote, of Christianity or the the, the exemplar of uh, Jesus Christ and and some of the uh, sticking points of the institutional church. So you, you hear versions of the story in so many spaces, but I find it fascinating that that sort of priestly renunciate idea or samskara was planted or present fairly early. And yeah. then something just uh, a book at eight years old lit your match, uh, yeah. <laughs> lit the match yeah. about, with, with, uh, with this, um, with, with sort of interest in the fireworks of South Asia. Um and it felt and comfortable. Way, it felt just totally comfortable to to move in that direction, even at that age, you know. Yeah, it was clearly it's some sort of pull or calling, it seems to be, at least in your case. And so <laughs> you get to India, you hitchhike your way there. And so was it uh, was there a particular length of stay you had in mind? Was there a particular goal? Was there a particular interest? Was it sort of adventure? Was it spiritual seeking? Uh, tell us a bit about what that was like for you. Well, <clears throat> the physical part of the journey was arduous. Um, you know, hitchhiking across um, the Middle East um, through Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, etc. And and I got ill, and and I ended up in, in the Himalayas to recover. Um, and what was interesting is I I'm, I saw this teacher. I had been up there just a couple of months, and I saw this sadhu, and I didn't know what a sadhu was, and the way he was dressed, I couldn't, I didn't know, I had no clue what he was. Um, I actually, when I was told that he was a holy man. I, I actually assumed he was Buddhist for some reason. I'm not sure why that was. But because um, I was living in Hawaii at the time and there was Buddhists here. Right? So um, and, and so I decided to talk with him and I talked with him uh, through an interpreter that I was learning Hindi. I, there was a young, uh, a teenage boy I was teaching English to. He was teaching me Hindi and he was acting as the interpreter. And I said, I wanted to talk to this person. And, and, and so the boy stopped him and said, you know, he wants to talk with you. And he asked, what is he? He had never met a Westerner before. And he really wasn't interested in meeting any Westerners, um, this sadhu. So he says, I said, well, I'd like to, you know, talk to you. And he says, about what? And I didn't know. I just was attracted to him. He just looked like this guy has it together. Right. And I didn't know what he knew. I didn't know anything about him. I just got the feeling he had it together and I wanted to have it together too. And I thought, I'll ask him. Right. And I and I asked him and he said, I said, I don't know. And he says, Why'd you come to India? Where are you from? I told him. And he says, Why'd you come to India? And I said, I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, I was being very honest. I, I was I didn't know what I was doing. And he said, Well, maybe you should, you know. Maybe you should get that together and figure out who you are and what you're doing. And he, he made it very clear, you know, get your act together. And I said, could you help me? Or no, actually, I said to him, do you know anybody that could help me? And he goes, yeah, I know a few people. 
<laughs> classic playful teacher who who doesn't let on what he actually knows <laughs> yeah exactly and so I said were anyone around here and I said he said no not here <laughs> and and so we got anyway long story short I talked him into teaching me something and <clears throat> he thought about it and he said um I'll think about it and let you know and he got up and left right I didn't know if I'd ever see him again. And then he happened to see that boy because they were living very close to each other. He was there on retreat and he was staying in a dharamsala, which was very near where the boy who was the the son of a music teacher. So he saw him and he said, you know, you can tell that American kid, um, you and him come to where I'm staying tomorrow night. And so we went and we went and he said, I'm going to tell you a couple of things. And I want you to practice them for three days. That's it. 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes in the evening, you practice it. And and if something happens and you and you you something happens to you, then you let me know about it. And and if you know you just do it and it's and nothing really seems to connect with you, then then um, you know, I, I I can probably find somebody who can help you maybe later on at some point. If if I see you again, we can talk about it. And and that was that was it. So I left him not knowing if I would ever see him again. Um, and so I and in those days, um, <clears throat> marijuana was a, a regular part of my um, uh, uh, of my life. And where I was living, the common weed in, in that area of the Himalayas was um, cannabis. So that was easy. But I saw him, but I, when I, after seeing him, I decided I was going to stop that for a few days and try this that he was that he told me these practices and, and I just sat there and I tried and it was difficult. He gave me a simple breathing and a simple focus practice. First day, nothing happened. Second day, nothing happened. And I thought, well, maybe nothing's going to happen. And then the third morning, I had a really meaningful moment where, where, <clears throat> where the, the, excuse me, where the Vrittis just stopped and where I was just there. And it just happened briefly. And then the mind came back and started doing its thing. But in those moments, I felt a real peace. And afterwards, I thought, I wonder if that's what he was talking about. I think I'm going to tell him. And so I went back and I told him. And he liked it. And long story short, I ended up becoming his disciple. And he was a renunciant in the Ramananda order. So um, I took an, an an initial teaching there and then form over the next couple of years various formal initiations into different aspects of the order and sunk right into it you know after meeting him my life changed and i knew now what i needed to know i didn't know it but i knew i needed to know something and i knew that i had confidence that i could get it here so I just started doing it, and um, that's where it happened. He left a trail of breadcrumbs for you to see if you could find the clearing yeah. in the forest. And yeah, you found the yeah. clearing in the forest, and it disappeared as if in the eye of a hurricane. And then the the whirling of the mind returned. Yeah. So he was he was 
He was um, he was verifying whether or not you're a dikara mm-hmm. <laughs> for for the next yeah. uh, the next levels apparently. And and that was in, and that and that was very much the case. So when I took a more formal initiation from him, he had me return. This was down in in Prayag, and and then he had me return to the Himalayas and for a six month retreat. And he and he gave me the treat specifically the retreat specifically to see was I an Adhikar? Was could I do what he wanted me to do? Um and he made it intense because he figured, you know, make or break him. And so I did that. And actually I was very happy to because it was giving me a focus that I didn't have. And so and when I when I saw him again after that first one is when he became he said, okay, got it. And then he knew that he could pretty much tell me anything and I would do it. So, and that's what's happened the, the whole, the next 45 years until he left his body. Um, so what year was it that you first met him? 69. So 69, then 45 years thereafter, then he's left his body. Um, without going into too many details, if, uh, as per your comfort, um, what sorts of practices without specifics but, but were they typically breathing or mantra or pujas or yeah so when he first taught me he taught me breathing practice he, he gave me some simple asanas and he asked me if i knew any asanas and i did um a guy by the name of uh, satyananda saraswati from the bihar school of yoga had been to hawaii um the previous year and i had met him and he was teaching some hatha yoga practices and i i learned a few um and I and also I was reading um, uh, just a variety of, of I had gotten a book on yoga uh, from Ernest by Ernest Wood, which was a really nice practical yoga book. And so I was I was learning some of those things already. So when he taught me this breathing, he taught me breathing, he taught me concentration. Um, and that's what I was doing. And and I just started and he told me, you know, 15 minutes, 15 in the morning and 15 minutes became 20 minutes, became a half an hour, became an hour, became two hours, became three hours. And, and the more I did it, the more I got into it. And the more I realized I had nothing else to do. And I just did that. And and what was interesting was that I was being provided for um, wherever I was because of my commitment and people around me, the Indians around me who saw what I was doing, they felt, well, helping me would be good karma for them. And Mm. so, and especially once I had become a sadhu, um, I never had a need after that, except to go in and find myself. All the external was taken care of. It's a a very uh, different culture in that regard, um, where there's not quite the analog, but perhaps on some level one can understand sort of uh, the renunciation of a Catholic priest, perhaps, and perhaps the celibacy thereof, but it's a very different culture that we're in with yeah. respect to those who are pursuing, um, pursuing, you know, sort of the inner spiritual quest. Um, it, it, one, it <laughs> took me a long time to understand that folks understand the language of how much do you charge? You know, yeah. what is this worth? Yeah. This is this yeah. is this is a this is a, a very different mindset in terms of how spiritual teachings are shared in the Indic context. Um, but it's great that you were provided for. Um, yeah. What was your? Uh, yeah, would you consider yourself 
uh, sadhu for a particular time? Is it still part of you to this day, or how would you characterize? Well, so yeah, so that's that's kind of interesting because on one hand, I became a sadhu in, in the summer of '69. Uh, I took a more formal initiation in January of '70, um, but by the time he left the valley in in September of '69, I, I had to myself, I'd already made the commitment that this is what I was going to do, and I was going to follow him and do whatever he told me to do. Um, and I did that formally until um, I returned to America, turned to Hawaii, um, because we had done two world tours. I had become his interpreter. I had become his interpreter and interpreter for a couple of other people. Um, and so he had students that from Canada, actually, that invited him to come uh, come to America, come to Canada. And so we did. He said, Ramdas, you got to go with me. I don't speak English. And so, but he met my parents and, and he realized they were poor. And he said, you need to help them because I didn't have any siblings who were in the situation to help them. And so I returned. And on one hand, I gave up being a Saudi because I was no longer in India and I was here and I got a job. And But here and here, I was still a Saudi. Even though I wasn't doing that formally, I remained that. And I realized that's really what I wanted. And and my mom realized it. And she said, you should go back to India. She says, yeah, I can tell your heart is there. you know, And I can tell that in quiet moments, that's probably where you are. She's very smart. Um, why she's very wise and you know she sort of, it's sort of a life slash through street smart that she has well she didn't go past she didn't finish elementary school okay so uh, I knew she had gone through at least third grade um, so her yeah her wisdom was street smart and world world aware right? so I went, went back to India and, and my teacher said no you you sh- you need to go back. I you need to take care of your parents, um, and I understand why you're here, but there's work for you there, and you need to go back. And that's when he told me to get married, mm-hmm. and and he said if you get married, you have to stay there, <laughs> right? Um, but he says, but I want you to realize you're still a sadhu, right? And and then these are their practices, and and don't ever stop doing your practices. And so on one hand, I stopped being a sadhu when I came back. And, and a lot of people tell you, a sadhu, I'm not a sadhu anymore. But inside, I knew I still, that was my life. And, that's, you know, and over the years, um, I've gone back to very much, that's my life. Um, so That's fascinating uh, on a number of levels. Um, when I was at the age of 23, 24, something radically shifted in my interior landscape when I was... Something just, you know, the, the the if you will, the wisdom gene was was there from a young age. There was something yeah. strange about my constitution, and that I was counseling adults even as a teenager. Um, but at twenty three ish, something just clicked on by twenty four for sure. I um, I very seriously considered formally renouncing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, <laughs> if you can believe it, through my intro Hinduism class, the sessional who was teaching it had a good friend who ran a yoga studio at which my master was giving presentations. I call him Mataji. Nice. He's, uh, he's, he's uh, moved on <laughs> from, 
from this locus in since uh, I guess 2017 perhaps mm-hmm. um but when I it, it it was fascinating he was very much an urban sadhu you know he didn't don the garb but he was as detached as detached can be and as sort of solo a solo can be he was just a, a, a cave dwelling uh Torontonian <laughs> to Toronto yeah. in his in his youth to teach and he's he had been there for 40 years by the time I met him and um it was actually this this renunciate in the garb of 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 of, of sort of a common man that got me to realize that I had work to do and mm-hmm. that I could deepen and seek the ways in which I was called to deepen and seek um but in my particular context and perhaps in the in the context of a particular subsection of of society or seekers that my seeking would be fulfilled not despite my engagement with the world but because of it there would be certain yeah. lessons and certain fulfillment that would have to take place um right. and yet for another student the, the advice that he would give me on a regular basis would have been poison for that student and he was always steering them clear <laughs> you know of <laughs> name and fame of of, of positions of this and this and this. And it was just, it was, it was um, fascinating. That, that brings up an interesting uh, uh, situation that happened to me. So every year in Prayag, and you know where Prayag is, is where the Ganga and the Jamuna come together um, in uh, near the town of Alhaban. And there's a month-long festival during the month of Mog, which you know, starts sometime in January and ends sometime in February. And every year I would be there and I, I kind of ran his camp there for seven years. Um, and different people would come to him to, to listen. Several thousand would uh, attend his afternoon lecture every day. And then <clears throat> people would come personally to his, to, to, his, to his tent to talk to him. And I was sitting with him one day and a boy came in and said, uh, I'm thinking about becoming a sadhu and, and would you... Um, and what, and what do you think about it? Um, my parents um, want me to get married. And he said, you're looking for your spiritual strength. You're looking for your spiritual understanding. And your parents want to attach you to the world for their sake. And really encouraged him to be Wean himself. Wow. Yeah. Look, well, look into yourself. Don't, you know, this is your life. Um, and you need to really think about that and really encouraged him on that path. A couple of days later, a guy came in and said, um, another, another young male came in and said, I want to, I want to become a sadhu and I want you to be my decent, you know, my guru. I would like you to give me initiation. And he said, why? And he said, well, you know, I don't, I'm not interested in the world and all these things. And, you know, my parents are, uh, and this and this. And he says, your parents raised you. You listen to them. They're your, you know, they, you, you should respect them because they, they raised you. You don't need to be a sadhu to be a good person. Go ahead and take care of them. Get married take care of your parents, and in the process, you can do sadhana, et cetera. The, the exact opposite that he told the, the, the boy two days before, right? Mm-hmm. And then after he left, we talked about it, and he said, some people are ready and some people are not. Exactly. And, 
and you never know what what your path in life is going to be, what's important. And he says, and that's really something that a guru needs to be able to do. If somebody wants to be a guru, they need, need to be able to, to see everybody as an individual and to see their samskars and to see their abilities and to see what path in the world they can best follow. I have this crass but hopefully apt joke yeah. slash metaphor that I share I share um, either with clients one-on-one for life guidance or at the, the online school where I say, you know, advice, personal growth or spiritual advice is it's like underwear. It can't be one size fits all. It yeah. has to be something very personal and catered to one's temperament and one's needs. And, yeah. and it, it, part of the, part of the fallacy in, in the, for example, self-help enterprise or sort of here's advice for everyone. I mean, there's a reason why you read a certain passage or a teaching. Oh, that really resonates. Oh, that doesn't at all. Oh, I love that book. Oh, I hate that book. What's missing is having the diagnostician there, right? It's mm-hmm. not just the pharmaceuticals are out, help yourself, they're, they're candy. It's, it's having the eyes on what you might need for your physiology, as it were, or your, you know, your temperament. And so that's mm-hmm. crucial. So I've, so. So how does um, how does uh, an ardent seeker, uh, a reincarnate sadhu, as it were, <laughs> um, become a professor of uh, religion? What was that academic journey like for you? Yeah. So so I came back, and my teacher had said, um, "Go go back to America and 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 become a teacher and teach the things that that I've taught you and that you're learning." And do you know who Houston Smith was? Okay, so in 1967, 1976, um, while I was in India, and I thought I had already applied for Indian citizenship, you know, I, I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life there. Um, and I got a letter from Houston Smith saying, um, I'm a professor at Circus University, and I'm bringing 35 honor students to India for three months, and would you be an our interpreter and guide? while we're there. And I thought, I don't know who this guy is. And he's an academic and I'm not interested in academia. And I was going to throw the new, I was going to throw the letter away. But as a Saju, I didn't have a lot of things. I had no blank paper and the back of the, the letter was blank. So I folded up and put it in my bag. If I need to write something, then I can use this. But I took no more further interest. I had no idea who he was, how he got a hold of me, why he got a hold of me, etc. So about a month later, I was with my teacher and and he's saying, I want you to go to the bazaar and get some vegetables, you know, sort of um, to bring for the cook. And I said, okay, so I got out the paper and I, I got out, I was going to write it down. Oh, I had this paper. I got out the paper and I'm starting to write it. And he says, what's that paper? And I said, well, that's a letter somebody sent me. Well, what did they say? And so I read it to him and he said, do it. I said, do it. I don't even know who this guy is. He said, Ram Dass, do it. And it was because I found out later my teacher already had a plan to send me back to America, but he hadn't told me about it, right? And so I wrote to Houston and I said, okay. And I ended up doing it. And part of that three months was the Kuma Mela of 1977, uh, and the 35, Houston and his family and the 35 students came to our camp and spent a week, week and a half in our camp with us there. And so Houston and my teacher talked a lot. And Houston said very much, 
to my teacher, send Ramdas back so that he can teach the things that you're teaching him because we don't get that that ver you know that experience. A lot of it is book learning, and it'd be good to have somebody there with a practical experience. So, so when I came back, I came back having been told I should get an education, but I but I knew it was going to be a part of my sadhana. It it wasn't to get, just to to get a job. It was going to be a part of it, and so. Yes, it, very much so. Very, it was, it, it I can easy so relate. <laughs> yes. It was easy to be a sadhu. It was easy to fast. It was easy to go for, you know, long periods of silence. That was easy. Dealing with people, that's a whole other issue, right? And so that's what I had to do. And I had to come back and I had to be like everybody else, except I was 10, 12 years older than all the other students. And, um, and I just did it. And I did it and I never knew what I was going to do. I was going to get a BA and I got the BA and then I got an MA. And But I didn't know what I was going to do after that. I I ended up on the big island and I was working in construction. And I thought maybe I would just be a con- work in construction the rest of my life. I'd be a, a, a sadhu construction worker, right? With a, satisfy, with a, satisfy both your Indian and your Italian karmas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but then a situation happened where I applied for to UC Santa Barbara and I got into the PhD program. And but each each moment, you know, it's like this is what's happening. I didn't know what was going on further, and and I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about it. And that was comfortable. It wasn't always comfortable with my wife. She wanted a little bit more security concepts, but she under also understood what the kind of person I was. So she never pressured me in that way. And I was very fortunate. I just took one day at a time. And before I knew it, I got a job teaching at UH and I've been there now 34. I'm on the 34th year. Wow, quite the journey. So um, say a bit about, you know, there is this, you know, religious studies is an interesting discipline for a number of reasons. But one of the age-old tensions is um, um, the academic study of religion versus uh, practice-oriented modes, and there are ways in which these two modes are cross-pollinating or cohabitating, or there seems to be more of a respect within the discipline of the mm-hmm. life of practice. I don't mean among um, research subjects, I mean among scholar practitioners. And yet here we are, you know, decades ago, um, someone at the academy saying, look, you've got all this practical experiential knowledge, and that might be worth sharing and teaching. Now, are these different? Do these happen in different spaces? Or what's that? What's it been like having both the intellectual and sort of the practical training? But that, what has that been like for your university teaching in that context? Well, so when I was first there, first at the university, I made a point of not talking about my spiritual background, not talking about my past. Um, and students weren't necessarily interested either. And, and so that was fine. And I was told, and I saw that even when I was in my PhD program, that somebody who was a practicing Hindu was not necessarily looked on positively in academia. Um, and I was basically, at, at one point, my professor at Santa Barbara said, Ramdas, if you want to get a job, you should change your name. And I said, why? And he said, because 
if somebody sees you and knows your name is Ramdas, they'll, they'll probably realize that you have converted and that you are practicing Hindu and practicing Hindus aren't known to be objective. And I went, hmm. I said, so who teaches Judaism here in our department? I was, I was going to ask, but practicing Christians are. <laughs> yeah, well, no, so it was a practicing Jew, right? And who teaches Christianity? Practicing Christian. And who is teaching Islam? A practicing Muslim. And who is teaching Native Americans? A practicing Native American. And who is teaching Buddhist stuff? A practicing Buddhist. Okay, so that's what's going on, but yet a Hindu can't be objective. And he goes, that's right. <laughs> I said, that's right. And I said, well, you know what? I'm not changing my name. There are people who want to hire me. I'm not going to present myself in a false way because I am who I am. And I do what I do. And and if they don't want to accept me, then they won't accept me. And decades later, uh, I, you know, I was a big boy. I worked on and off. I did a couple of degrees. I worked after my master's. I was doing um, basically training with my with my guru day in and day out as, as I was doing academic studies and various other things. And and yet um, I defended in 2015. It took me about till 2020 to really be somewhat comfortably being forthcoming with mm -hmm. um, spiritual teaching and spiritual training. Um, yeah. And now, now, sure, I mean, there's there's an academic life, there's nice scholarly production, there's uh, speaking to wonderful scholars on this podcast about their works, and then there's life guidance work, and some mm -hmm. sometimes that's more spiritual counsel than tutoring or life coaching. Um, yeah. Then there is the School of Indian Wisdom that turns happens to turn two years old today, where I'm sharing the the perspective of the teachings with an eye to a application in, in the life of practice. Of course, not not daft to or not um, not willfully ignorant to you know history, culture, society. If you're teaching today, it's all in a myth of Lakshmi and Lakshmi speaking of Vishnu and, and et cetera, et cetera. There's great spiritual wisdom in, in, in the cycle, but of course there's a patriarchal overlay. Of course there are, of course, why is Vishnu not massaging Lakshmi's feet? Of course, of course, of course. But it, it's taken me decades later, it's still taken me until recent years to be forthcoming about these different aspects of self because mm -hmm. of the internalized shame about um, spirituality from the academic yeah. indoctrination about commerce, about public engagement. And it's taken me such a long time to realize these are actually extraordinary strengths and gifts. It's yeah. not that I can, it's not that I'm a good scholar, despite these aspects. In my particular case, I'm a good scholar because I understand how to teach the public, because I understand the spiritual dimension. Um, and so, but it's, it really has taken some time to own that. And I'm sure yeah. there, there may well be scholars who roll their eyes. I mean, just because someone's a, if someone's a music, a music historian by day and a, a jazz musician by night, it doesn't mean they can't do both very well and they can't have both cross pollinate. But, but uh, that, that, um, that, uh, that attitude, I, I'm inclined to say prejudice, that prejudice towards practice. It is, it is a prejudice. Absolutely. Uh, it, I think it's shifted a fair bit in our discipline, I also think um, uh, it's somewhat very much alive. And I think, I think good scholarship has to be good scholarship. And mm -hmm. I think uh, yeah, good uh, um, 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 lineal transmissions have to be good tra lineal transmissions. And they can, in this day and age, you have people who are very smart and very spiritual and they, they want to feed different aspects of their being. 
But at the same time, in an undergraduate setting, one wonders, clearly your, your job is to teach them something about the, the theology and philosophy and history and, and, and the sociology of traditions. But do you also have students uh, in, in your particular setting who come to religious studies interested in more? Yeah. Today, today I see, and, and as you know, over, over the last three decades, you, you've seen switches in, in why people come, different reasons. Today, especially post-COVID, um, students are looking for something. Students, more students now have psychological problems that are apparent than ever before, and more students are honest about it. The, I can't tell you how often students, when they come in my office hours, they're not just asking about the exam, the upcoming exam, or why, an extra credit for the exam they did poorly on, but they're asking personal questions about themselves and what they can do to be happy and 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 they're lost and, and these kind of things. I get so much more of that today than before. They're really looking for something. Um, and and I encourage them to follow it. Um, I was talking with two students yesterday, actually three students uh, at one point, um, sitting together in the four of us, we're just talking about life and 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 where is happiness and 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 what is the goal of life? And basically, I tell them, you know, I think the goal of life is to know yourself and to help others um, practice, practice compassion. Other than that, I don't think any of it matters. I don't think whether you believe in a deity or not necessarily matters, though I think to understand that there's something greater is a source of strength. But I don't think it ultimately matters. It matters what people do in their daily lives. How do you treat each other? And, that, and that's the bottom line. And I get to the, and I talk to the students about it. I said, that's simple. You don't need... Uh, a university degree to know you should be nice to each other, right? You should be honest. Um, and we and I start talking about them on a gut level like that. What do you do every day? What is it that makes you happy? And what is it that frustrates you? And, and let's talk about that. And let's see what you can do in your life to become a more decent human being, because that means the world you live in will be a more decent world. And we just talk, talk like that. Yeah, I had the... Um... Good fortune. I had never been to Hawaii, but earlier uh, this year, I suppose it was January, if I'm not mistaken, I ended up stopping off to do a bit of work on the way to run a retreat in Australia. And my goodness, it's it's not just uh, because of the commercial presentation and the marketing for, for hospitality industry. There really is something uh, paradise-like. There, there's a there's a field of energy there that's just it's different. It's just different there. Uh, it's lovely. Yeah, there really is luscious, luscious. Um, setting, not just visually, and, and of course, natural settings are always beautiful. There's just a different uh, vibe there. It's lovely. And, and you had invited me to give a guest lecture. And yeah, we, we talked, obviously, I shared some content from an academic perspective. And then with the questions, people often toggle into different spaces, depending on their interests. Yeah. Um, I was yeah, surprised maybe a couple of years ago, I tried to do a one credit class a year so I really love teaching undergrads as an as an independent in essence I don't uh, the vast majority of my teaching is continuing studies but I do love teaching undergrads but mm -hmm. I was teaching a course I believe it was last year and I was so very surprised that I was helping a young man um, just troubleshoot 
essay writing. He, he, he was coming from a different discipline, not humanities or social science. And he, you know, it was a spot that he recognized he needed to sort of work on to do well. So we, we did a little bit of workshopping. And then, and then, then when we're done, he says, says, can I ask you a question? I said, you can ask me any question you want. It doesn't mean I have to answer. <laughs> Go ahead, sure. Feel free. Yeah. Um, and he said, uh, <laughs> it was hilarious. He goes, he says to me, <laughs> How are you like that? I said, what do you mean like that? What do you mean like that? He goes, I just, I listen to your videos and I come to class and you just seem so calm all the time. Well, like, what are you doing? Like, how do, how, how can you be like that? And it was hilarious. Mm-hmm. And th- this young man was uh, from an Islamic background mm-hmm. and he was literally asking about, <laughs> for lack of a better word, <laughs> into practices. And I said, mm-hmm. listen, look, I, I can't quite respond to this as your prophet. If you want to set up some time when I speak to you just as some dude who's lived longer and who's done some experiential learning, then maybe we can entertain that, but uh, perhaps after the course and, you know, he was so, many of them are so hungry for much more than the academic content, but he really was looking to stabilize the tumult in his being that he recognized had just been amped up since the pandemic. And I found it so fascinating that it didn't, there wasn't this idea of staying within a re- one particular religious lane for him at all. It was just, he was just looking for whatever would work. Uh, it was, but it really was an illuminating experience for me actually to take the temperature of where, where folks are at. Um, could you tell us a bit about your, um, let's see, where can we go from this? At the University of Hawaii, what mm-hmm. sorts of programs or courses are currently run there? Yeah. So one of the things I do is I, I every year, every semester, I've taught Introduction to World Religion. Now, what happens in a lot of departments is they'll have their graduate students or their assistant professors teach the intro courses, and then the senior professors will teach the higher level courses. We don't approach it that way because 90% to 95% of the students who are going to take classes in our department, that's the class they take. So we should, we decided that we're going to give those students people who actually know what they're talking about. So I've taken on, and, and I'm the senior professor in the department, and, and some semesters I'm the only one that's teaching that intro course because, and that's where a lot of our majors come. They get that course, they like it, they, they, they love the stories, they love the, the knowledge that they get, and, and, and there's a real comfort level at that. So I do that class. And then I, there's two other classes that I focus, three other classes I focus on now. One of them is religion, politics, and society. So we look at what is ethical? What does it mean? How do we take the, the religious values? And they're not, and I shouldn't say that. How do we take those values that in religion are important? Morality and ethic is not owned by religion, as you know. Um, morality and ethics are, is fundamental to life. And so then we talk about how, what is it like? What, what does it mean to be ethical with regards to abortion and affirmative action and gun control and drugs and immigration and gay marriage and, and all of these things? We look at all of those issues and say, what's a moral solution to these issues? And I try to get the students to understand that there is no one moral solution to any issue, but there is how you approach an issue and that you can be moral on both sides of all of those issues almost. 
um, to get the students to understand that most people are moral, whether or not they agree with you. Too often they're being taught that there's one way of thinking and it's our way of thinking and that this is the moral way. This is the correct way. And, and I try to push back on that and say, no, the, you know, it's each of us approach life differently. And it, there is no one way to approach life, just like there's no one way to be. There's no one job. There's no one truth. Right. Um, so the Jane's concept of anekantavada, uh, mm -hmm. right? There, there is no one way of truth. So let's, uh, uh, so I allow my students to be who they are, you know, just be good about it, be decent about it. Um, so I do that class and then I teach a class on mysticism. That's, I'm doing that this semester. And it's great because we talk about Christian mystics and Muslim mystics and Jewish mystics and Sufi mystics, I mean, and, and, and um, Native American. And, and then it, mysticism is a little harder to use with respect to, you know, Hinduism and Buddhism, because what we call mysticism in those traditions is actually just an integral part of Buddhism and Hinduism. It's not something separate and distinct as it is in those other traditions. So, you know, we talk about that and my students read uh, and, we, and we read poetry and we talk about ideas and concepts. And then I bring in quantum physics and David Bohm and, and, um, and we I integrate that into mysticism because you see that a lot of the theory of quantum mechanics is very mystical. Um, and then I teach a class, a graduate course on ritual and practice where we just talk about what, what, what kind of rituals do people do and what are the practices that we find all over? I, I focus on South Asia, but I talk about practices um, in the Abrahamic traditions, practices in indigenous traditions, etc. And what does it mean to do to do a practice? Uh, you mentioned in past that you looked at literature, and this is—I mean, there are folks who have been doing this for decades, I suppose. I haven't looked closely at literature at all, but making connections or aiming to make connections between um, physics and uh, spirituality, mysticism. Uh, some would claim that there there are compelling parallels. Some would claim it's pseudoscience, and so I'm curious when you're looking at at, at sort of the, the 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 quantum model of reality, quantum physics. Is it such that there's positing a, a mechanistic relationship between that and the, the consciousness journey, or is it uh, sort of an analog or a par parallel or like, how do you view that? Well, so <clears throat> David Bohm was a um, student of uh, Albert Einstein, and he also became a, a devotee of Krishnamurti. Uh, he was the head of the physics department at, I'm thinking it was Oxford, but it might not have been Oxford, but it was it was in England, in London. And he was head of the physics department for 18 years. Uh, a, a brilliant, uh, an absolutely brilliant person, uh, David Bohm, B-O-H-M. And he and another guy by the name of um, Carl Pribham, who was a brain neurosurgeon, kind of together it came up with this idea about the holographic model of the universe, in which the universe is is simply a projection of energy from an, from a, a grounded source and that our minds, our brains interpret this energy as three-dimensional. But, you know, if we look at the, 
the structure of atoms and that we're all made up of atoms and atoms are one forty thousandth mass and all the rest is empty space. Everything that we see doesn't really exist as we see it. It's all Maya, right? But yet we interpret it as a three-dimensional universe. And in theoretical physics, you get a lot of people who understand that and approach it that way and, and look at it that way. And so that's what I do. And I try to say, so so the world that we're creating is a world. So the world that I live in is a very different world than you live in, right? And I tell my students, the world that we're living in right now, you're looking at me and I'm looking at you, right? I'm seeing you as a part of my world. You're seeing me as a part of your world. Um, but your world is your world, not my world. And we all create things. And so what can I do as a person to bring more peace to the world? is to bring more peace to my world. Because when I bring more peace to my world, then the world has become that much more peaceful. And so I talk to the students in that way and, and I have them read David Bohm. And David Bohm's um, essay called On Dialogue is superb. And, and I just get them to think about what they see as their creation. They see goodness, they see evil. And, and you know, the story of um, Duyodhana and Yudhishthira um, and, um, and their guru. Um, and, and I'm trying to remember the guru's name. Um, do you remember Yudhishthira's Drona? Dronacharya, right? Mm. Yes. So um, Dronacharya calls in um, Duryodhana one day. And, you know, Duryodhana is the classic not so nice a guy, right? And he says to Duryodhana, go out into the bazaar and bring me back a good person. And he says, okay, Guruji. And he goes out into the bazaar. He's gone all day, comes back at the end of the day. And he says, so did you bring me one? I couldn't find anybody good. They're all, they're all thugs. They're all, you know, they're cheats. And they everybody, all they care about is themselves and nobody's honest and all of this stuff. And he goes, oh, okay, thank you. Then the next day he calls in Yudhishthira the good person. And he says, you just said, go find me a, a, a bad person in the bazaar. Right? And he says, okay. He goes and he's gone all day. He comes back and his guru says, so did you bring me a bad person? I couldn't find anybody bad. Everybody's nice. Everybody's decent. <laughs> Same bazaar, two different worlds. We create our world. So if we want a good world, then we have to create a good world. And it starts in here. And, and that's what I get the students to see. And in the mysticism class, the, the teaching of the mystics align with that so much. Um, mm. and, and, and then you read David Bohm, and then you read um, the various writers uh, in that regards, um, you know, Ken Wilbur, et cetera. And it's, um, the students love it. The students see the connection very much. So. Could you tell us a bit about your involvement in Donham? and the yeah. Donham Enterprise. Yeah, so I was asked to attend one of Donham's first meetings. This is around 2004, I think. I think that's the first time I attended. It was in 2004. And Donham was put together by two people, um, Professor Rita Sharma and uh, Adarsh Deepak, who, as you know, left his body um, just um, a few months ago. Um, they happened to meet uh, at an airport. They're in, waiting for the same plane and uh, the plane was delayed and they end up sitting and talking together and they came up with this idea of Donham. And what it was, was they're both academically 
involved, academically interested, and yet practitioners were often, and especially practitioners of the Dharma traditions, the four traditions from India, were typically being left out of academic dialogue. Uh, their views were, and so they thought we should put together an organization that includes people who are practitioners about these traditions, people who understand them from the inside. And that was the birth of Dharam. And when it first started and they got connected with AAR, there were a lot of people at AAR who wouldn't come to any Dharam talks because, oh, no, those are practitioners. You can't trust them, right? Um, they could go to a Jew's Jewish talk about Judaism, a Muslim talk about Islam, a Christian talk about Christianity, and that was all good. That was all academic. But as soon as you have Hindus or Buddhists or Jains or Sikhs talking about their own traditions, no, no, you can't do that because they're they're not objective. But over the years, little by little, people from the academic side who are knowledgeable academics, um, respected academics, started coming and started sitting in and then started getting invited to our panels and started speaking on our panels. And now, as you know, Donham, there's a lot of people who come to Donham who are, are not necessarily practitioners or who are practitioners who were afraid to come before because they didn't want to be identified with practitioners because they were practitioners in the closet. And I've had so many over the years, young professors come to me and say, how can I, how can you do that? I have to live in a closet. I can't tell people what I really believe in, or I'm not going to get tenure. You know, and there is, I don't get as many of those people these days. Um, it still happens in some places, but I think there's more of an acceptance that practitioners can be good scholars. And, and, and I think you would agree with me that I think we can be better scholars because we can see the inside and the outside both. Well, it, well I think there's, without question, it's a complex issue and there are a number of different, um, there are a number of different ways in which the two can combine fruitful and otherwise. I think good yeah. scholarship is good scholarship. If you can think critically, if you can engage the sources, if you can in my case, it's narrative. Uh, but if you have, can have a sense of what the story is telling, and if you're able to illumine the story world and tie it into the history of ideas and show mm -hmm. something of use to the history of scholarship, for example, in the Puranas, in my case, and good scholarship is good scholarship. There's a reason why both books were published in Rutledge's Hindu Studies series edited by Gavin Flood. Like It's decent scholarship, right? It's not perfect. Mm -hmm. It's not for everybody. Fine. But it's it's not nothing, and it's not, it's not bubkiss. Like, it's scholarship but the issue is that whether or not one can actually think critically and do that well and also toggle to the experiential so yeah. it, when one is looking at a text talking about a an, um, a reference to a mantra uh, here's an example i uh, i was able to somehow decode that the devi mahatmya is nestled in the markani purana between myths of Surya, but it, for a number of reasons, I think one of the things I argue is because of the symbolic import of preservation and perverty dharma that's that's innate to both the Devi and the king and the and Surya, you know, Vishnu's essential yeah, dharma. Yeah. But 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 one thing that clicked in my brain was that the the myth of uh, the myths of Surya were encoding the ritual timing of Navaratri when the sun enters Tularashi. 
I would never have been able to see that as a scholar were it not for my exposure to symbology, particularly a la Jyotisha. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that was able. So, I was able to draw on that. So, my intellectual mind could see, ah, brilliant. This is why they're sticking this text in between these segments. Yeah, it's there. Yeah. It's there for a reason, right? Yeah. And the, the, the ritual timing of when this text is chanted is actually in. It's brilliant. But at the same time, you could buy my argument. You cannot buy my argument. You know, I'm happy to engage. I'm happy to exchange. It's. I think that's the mark of a decent scholar and a decent person. But yes, without question, in in my view, there's when one has knowledge of playing, one could be a musician and not be able to think critically at all or historically at all. But if you have the ability to think, to study scores and study music history, and if you have the ability to play an instrument, you're going to much more clearly understand a historical movement and the turn from one style of music to another you're going to see something in a score of where the pause or where the phrasing ends well clearly because you have the musical chops on your side so it, it can go a number of ways but i think that good scholarship being good scholarship certainly having familiarity uh with 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 um with a tradition could not hurt and there are even those engaged in emic study sorry an edict study where they'll go and they'll study a group of people or a tradition and it's their immersion in what happens during that festival, what happens during that puja. It's their immersion that informs and empowers their their observations and their their theorizing. So, so yeah, I, I very much feel that they. Um, I don't think that all scholars need to be practitioners, obviously, uh, or vice versa, obviously. But I think if you can do both well, then it, it may well be an assist. Um, well, if yeah. if. And I'll use the example of, of monastic traditions because, as you know, I was a, a part of that. I'm still a part of, of that. And and I, and I read various things that people have written about the monastic tradition and the people who have looked at it from the outside and they've gone and they've interviewed people. And when you are interviewing a sadhu, that sadhu is going to tell you what he wants you to hear. Right. Not necessarily based on, based on where you are at. Exactly. Exactly. And so if he sees that you're just there to to copy down some words so that you can then publish it, that's all you're going to get is anything superficial, nothing of depth, nothing of a reason. Um, the context. If, on the other hand, you are a participant and you know the tradition and, and they they know that you are you take this stuff serious, they're going to approach you very, very different. Right. Um, and so you're going to so you look at and I so I can I read writings about uh, the monastic life in India and the ascetic life in India. And it's pretty clear who by what is written, whether they actually have inner, the, the experience within the traditions at all, or if it's simply external. And some of the popular books are written by people who are totally external to the whole process. They'll go and they'll spend a month or two. Um, they'll get a Fulbright grant, they'll spend three or four months, and they may have an, an interpreter because they haven't really learned the language. And, and a lot of sadhus have their own language anyway, um, within the tradition. Um, and then they'll write a book and they become the experts. You know, they say in India, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed is king. And so somebody knows a little bit <laughs> and they write it and everybody goes, oh, wow, that's superb. Right? Fascinating. So, yeah. so um, 
if you could, if you had a magic wand, okay, mm-hmm. uh, let's just say for the sake of conversation, um, you know, uh, what have you, the, the, the Davy in her infinite wisdom has manifested before you and bestowed upon you a magic wand and said, you yeah. know what? You can do something to change or alter, or you could change the course of um, scholarship on South Asia, or mm-hmm. or perhaps even she gives you multiple boons. She gives you two. Your sadhana was so great, she gives you two. You could perhaps change or shift something about scholarship on South Asia and or teaching, academic teaching. What might that look like? What I would do is make practice an integral part of, of the learning process. Uh, and it's it doesn't have to be belief-based. And as you know, a lot of the practices, belief is not relevant. It's not, it's not an issue. Um, learn how to calm your mind, right? Um, le- learn how to do dharana, which, you know, in the West they call meditation, but is actually concentration. Learn dharana. Learn introspection. Learn how to breathe. Learn how to keep the body limber so you can sit for long periods of time, learn how to introspect, learn how to look at one's desires, one's fears, one's attachments, and and do practices that challenge those. So one of the things I have my students do, my graduate students especially, but sometimes my upper division undergraduates, I'll say, okay, we're going to go on a um, field trip. Um, it's a 24-hour field trip. Everybody want to go? Everybody raises their hand. Yes, I want to go. Great. They say, where are we going? And I said, we're going inside. And they went, what do you mean? And I said, you're going inside. <laughs> so for 24 hours, you're going to go inside. So we're all going to do it individually but we're going to go inside. And so now they can't say, oh, I don't know if I'm going to have time because they just told me they had time for a 24-hour field trip, right? So so I said, you go inside. And what does this mean? There's no phone. There's no TV. There's no music. There's no reading unless you're reading specific stuff from the class. There's no talking. There's just being with yourself. Students, I don't know if I can do that. And I've had some students come up to me and say, there's no way I'm going to turn off my phone. They just, right? But the students who do it, many of them will tell me that was the most important part of the class because it gave them an opportunity to actually sit and think about themselves, something that many of them have never done. And that's the beginning. And now after that, then they become more open to listening to about the various things that people do. And then they get insight to why there are these thoughts and, and, and philosophies within the traditions, something like that, something to, sh- to shock them, push them to say, okay, if you want to study golf, maybe you should actually get out and try hitting a golf ball sometime, right? You, you can't be an expert on golf if you've, never t- if you've never hit a golf ball, right? You can't be an expert on driving if you've never got behind the wheel. You can't be an expert on anything if you haven't practically incorporated it on some level into your own experiences. That's what I would do. Fascinating. What would you say, let's just say uh, a colleague uh, who, who was in, well, a scholar, so there's an intellectual bent, and there's not necessarily a reticence to practice, but there's no inclination or calling. And uh, a colleague is an expert, oh, I mean, there's so many niches, Could, uh, or, um, the, the history of the uh, uh, Portuguese colonization of, of, of Goa. 
example. I mm-hmm. just had a couple of recent podcasts on that, or, or what have you, anything, any, any mm-hmm. and they're understanding something from I an mean, historical, sociological perspective. And that's the enterprise. Mm-hmm. Would one not say that self-sufficient and self-contained breadth of practicing life? Or how would you, you know, I'm not looking for a particular answer, but how would you, uh, how would you make sense of that? Well, <clears throat> when I do, when I have my students do this, and, and then we talk about it. And each student will, will talk a little bit about experience. And I tell them, you don't have to talk about it. But if you want to talk about it, a lot of the students want to talk about what they think because it was a new thing for them. And the students begin to realize that everybody's experience is unique. And yet everybody's experiences have elements of the same thing. And so I try to get them to approach it that way. Everybody's life is different. Everybody's beliefs are different. But there are certain elements that are common. And why? Because we're all human beings. And it helps the students to understand that, or at least to begin to get to the understanding that as human beings, we're all, we're all the same. But our cultures, our upbringing, our, our geographical, our historical, uh, our economic, our ecological um, criteria and context influences how we experience what we experience. But things are very much alike. And and once a person starts looking at themselves, and I say, then when you look at somebody else, understand that they have a different context. They're going to interpret something different. But understand they're interpreting it relative to their context in the very same way you are interpreting it relative to your context. So I try to get the students to don't judge others. You know, the old Native American thing, um, you get to walk a mile in somebody else's moccasins. Right? Um, learn about life. Learn about the importance of of context, of social, political, religious context, and don't judge others, except to say that's a very different context, and and what they do. Maybe there are different ways that they could do that, and that's true. I, I I don't tell them all cultures are great. I think there's some bad elements to every culture. Bad in the sense that hurtful. Um, I, I don't see any cultures. People say, oh, all cultures are fine. Well, yeah, all cultures have good and bad in them. Some of them have a little bit more good in them. Some have a little bit more not so good in them. But, but cultures are cultures. And people are people. And, and all of us have the ability to also, and I talk to my students about the importance of stepping outside of their boxes, the boxes of what they were raised in. You know, you're told this is right. This is right. Right. Well, can you go over here? Can you step outside your box? Can you look outside your box? Can you see something greater? Um, and maybe looking at what other people are doing, maybe you're going to learn something. You know, see somebody who lives a totally different life and go see if you can learn something from it. And you know what? I'll bet you will. Um, and just challenge the students to go to, to expand themselves. And I think that that's what we need to do. Um, move beyond the, the intellectual um, you can incorporate it, but um, William James said many people many people think they're thinking when they're merely rearranging their prejudices. So I think this is right, and then I hear, oh no no this is right, and then, oh wait a minute no this is right. I've never I haven't expanded at all. I've just gone from one set of narrow minded ideas to another set of narrow minded ideas, and I think that's what a lot of people do in their lives. And so, you know, we have to get our students and ourselves and others to kind of more broadly accept life. And I think if we do that, things change.
is this process um, of uh, this aspiration or process of moving beyond the intellectual, as you put it, does it entail um, training the intellectual, strengthening the intellectual? Does, is there, is there, a, is there a, a stepping stone therein where the, the intellectual engagement and the rigor is, is useful or perhaps desirable? I, I think it is. We're, we are given a brain and a heart for reasons. Right? And, um, and I think they work, fu- they function together really well. Um, it's important for us to be non-cognitive. It's important for us to emote and to emotionally experience the world. But it's also important for us to think, to understand, to be rational, to be reasonable, to be logical. Um, and all of those are not narrow categories, as, as you know, you know, one person's logic is not the same, but to use the mind, we're given the mind, it's just like we're given 10 fingers, we don't only use six of them, right, <clears throat> or we don't only use one hand, um, we have them for a reason, we have two eyes for a reason, we have two ears for a reason, I think we have a heart and a mind for a reason, I think we've got to use them both, um, and, and use them to help us to work together, um, with our thoughts and our feelings. Um, and I think that when we can harmonize our thoughts and our feelings in a way that brings peace to ourselves, it will bring peace to others as well. Beautiful thought. Is there any aspect uh, of your path, of your work or your perspective? Is there anything else that you wanted to say or share or even ask before we close for today? No, I think I, I would just say that and for my own self, I, I, I realize that finding peace within my heart is the most important thing. I start out every day, as you probably do, and I know many, maybe many people who are listening, and make your practice start your day. Start your day with your practice. Start your day with your centering. And then go about doing the rest of the day, but try to keep that center with you. And, and, and I associate it very much with the breath, so that if I'm in a situation where... Maybe there's some mental imbalance for some reason because of something that's happening. I just find a corner, you know, step out of the room, close my eyes and breathe and recreate the center and then come back in and continue. Um, And I think all of us need to be able to do that, Um, no matter who we are, where we are. Find your moments to find your peace and carry that piece around with you. And if you carry a piece around with you, you will be, you will do more for the world than the majority of people because the majority of people don't spend time trying to make the world more peaceful. They spend more time trying to make themselves richer or whatever it is, um, meet their sensual desires but not trying to make the world more peaceful. And, you know, my teacher once said to me, he says, if you can change the life of 12 people, I mean, really change the life in the sense of putting them in a direction of being, a, a creating more peaceful world, and you've done more than 99% of the population. And, but it starts with ourselves. So I changed myself and then work on changing. In other words, what he said, 12 is, you know, it's just a number. Um, he's saying, don't go out and change the world. You can't change the world, but you can change yourself. And in the process, you can help the people you come in contact with. And if you do that, and if we all did that, no matter what it is, 
whatever our methodology is, whether it's as a cook or a baker, whether it's as a school teacher or a seamstress or a tailor, I don't think those things matter. I think matters is, can we bring peace to people? Can we help inspire in people peace? Well, thank you for that uplifting message. And thank you for appearing on the podcast today. Nice to see you. For those listening, we have been having a candid conversation with Dr. Ramdas Lam uh, of the Department of Religion at the University of Hawaii. Um, Until next time, keep well, keep listening, and uh, (laughs) make sure to visit Hawaii at some point. Take care. Bye for now.